This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Michel de Montaigne is a man of the Renaissance who lived from 1533 to 1593. He was the first essayist, and in fact, he seems to have created the term essay. There already existed a prose form known as discorsi, as well as various theological structures for presenting arguments, but Montaigne's collected writings represent a stylistic leap into something else entirely. His writing flows in free form. Oftentimes, the beginning thought of one of his essays is very far from the musings upon which it ends, and his writing is rich with digressions and with personal anecdotes. He advanced arguments for his opinions, he mused on the wisdom of the poets of antiquity, he recorded travelogues, he described the customs and beliefs of the people that he encountered on his travels. But above all, in this vast variety of topics that Montaigne covers, what we find most of all in his writing is Montaigne the man. He speaks to us directly, with little to no pretense or ornamentation. And one feels, as they read his words even 500 years later, that they're almost in a sort of conversation with him. That you're hearing the voice, the mind, the perspective of Montaigne. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote of Montaigne that he stood as one of many outstanding representatives of the French Renaissance. In favorable contrast with the dry-as-dust style of German writers, even the best German writers like Goethe and Schopenhauer. Nietzsche writes in Wanderer and His Shadow, quote, What clearness and graceful precision there is in these Frenchmen. The Greeks, whose ears were most refined, could not but have approved of this art. And one quality they would have admired and reverenced, the French verbal wit, end quote. The other French authors he lists aside Montaigne are La Rochefoucauld, La Bruyère, Fontenelle, Valvenard, and Champfort. He says that in reading them, quote, we are nearer to antiquity than in any group of six authors of other nations. Through these six, the spirit of the last centuries before Christ has once more come into being, and they collectively form an important link in the great and still continuous chain of the Renaissance. Their books are raised above all changes of national taste and philosophical nuances. End quote. We might notice that Nietzsche's reasoning for placing these men as the link from antiquity to the Renaissance is not simply because they drew upon the ideas of the ancients, but because their clarity of style and their command of wit, what he calls the French verbal wit. It's because they are economical and intentional in the way that they turn a phrase. And while Montaigne is not an aphorist, as some of these other writers are, he possesses that same flair for crafting memorable sentences and phrases. The great talent of Montaigne is not necessarily about making the most rigorous argument, but about imprinting his thoughts and feelings in a powerful, memorable way. Uh, we might remember that phrase from Zarathustra about not wanting to be merely read, but learned by heart. This art hadn't been refined as much throughout the age of Aristotelian medieval scholasticism. We even find it lacking in some of the philosophers who came after Montaigne, 
and initiated the Enlightenment, uh, such as Descartes. But Nietzsche argues these six French writers came along who aspired to write beautifully and to communicate clearly. As Nietzsche writes elsewhere, the Greeks desired above all to hear people speak beautifully, to hear and read well-crafted phrases. And so the Greeks strive to imbue the art and the poetry of language within their speech. Uh, this is the great virtue that Nietzsche sees in Montaigne, and it's why he sees him as a link to antiquity. A wonderful introduction to Montaigne's philosophy is found in a letter he wrote to the Contessa Diana de Foix, entitled Of the Education of Children. This letter, which runs to the length of an essay, is generally included among the collected essays of Montaigne, and in it he goes into great detail about what sort of tutor should be entrusted to bring up and educate a child. Montaigne describes all of the traits that this tutor has to have, and in the course of this essay, Montaigne quotes Cicero, as he often does, who says, quote, the authority of those who teach is often an obstacle to those who want to learn, end quote, and he warns against any kind of education based on authority and characterized by what we might call book learning in the sense of just filling up a young mind with a thousand quotations and historical facts and dates and the imitated opinions and judgments of others. The overall thrust of this letter, which is really an essay, is that to truly educate a child, one must not teach trivium, but teach how to live. He says to let the tutor remember the object of his task and, quote, let him not impress on his pupil so much the date of the destruction of Carthage as the characters of Hannibal and Scipio, nor so much where Marcellus died as why his death there showed him unworthy of his duty. Let him be taught not so much the histories as how to judge them. That, in my opinion, is of all matters the one to which we apply our minds in the most varying degree. I have read in Livy a hundred things that another man has not read in him. Plutarch has read in him a hundred besides the ones I could read. End quote. And so, the capacity to make judgments, that's the main thing which education ought to instill. Can't simply impress beliefs into the the student's head by overbearing authority. There's no way for one to become able to make rational or moral judgments by mere rote, by simply repeating what has been given to you, since one's life will always consist of its own unique circumstances. One can't simply memorize the capacity for judgment. You could memorize individual judgments that others have made, but developing that capacity uh, is like training up a set of muscles. Um, it has to be done, engaged in by the student themselves. But this is not how most are brought up and educated, as Montaigne argues in the following passage, quote, Our mind moves only on faith, being bound and constrained to the whim of others' fancies, a slave and a captive under the authority of their teaching. We have been so well accustomed to leading strings that we have no free motion left. Our vigor and liberty are extinct, Seneca says, they never become their own guardians. I had a private talk with a man in Pisa, a good man, but such an Aristotelian that the most sweeping of his dogmas is that the touchstone and measure of all solid speculations and of all truth is conformity with the teaching of Aristotle, that outside of this there is nothing but chimeras and inanity, 
that Aristotle saw everything and said everything. This proposition, having been interpreted a little too broadly and unfairly, put him once, and kept him long, in a great danger of the Inquisition in Rome. Let the tutor make his charge, pass everything through a sieve, and lodge nothing in his head on mere authority and trust. Let not Aristotle's principles be principles to him any more than those of the Stoics or Epicureans. Let this variety of ideas be set before him. He will choose if he can. If not, he will remain in doubt. Only the fools are certain and assured. As Dante says, for doubting pleases me no less than knowing. For if he embraces Xenophon's and Plato's opinions by his own reasoning, they will no longer be theirs. They will be his. He who follows another follows nothing. He finds nothing. Indeed, he seeks nothing. Seneca says, We are not under a king. Let each one claim his own freedom. Let him know that he knows at least. He must imbibe their ways of thinking, not learn their precepts. And let him boldly forget if he wants where he got them, but let him know how to make them his own. Truth and reason are common to everyone, and no more belong to the man who spoke them first than to the man who says them later. It is no more according to Plato than according to me, since he and I understand and see it in the same way. The bees plunder the flowers here and there, but afterward they make of them honey, which is all theirs. It is no longer time or marjoram. Even so, with the pieces borrowed from others, he will transform and blend them to make a work that is all his own, to wit, his judgment. His education, work, and study aim only at forming this. End quote. What Montaigne articulates here is to some extent a form of perspectivism, to consider the lives and works of past thinkers as a variety of perspectives from which to view life. And since truth and reason are common to us all, if one develops one's capacity for judgment and comes to the same judgment as Plato, then he can say, this is my judgment, because that is what matters, is the capacity for judgment, not the authority of Plato. And I think some of these ideas may seem somewhat obvious to us who are uh, thoroughgoing children of modernity and post-modernity. But this way of thinking, the um, I wanted to particularly give that example that he gives of his acquaintance who is a um, solid Aristotelian, a close-minded Aristotelian, because that kind of thinking, the argument from authority, that's not regarded necessarily as a fallacy during this time. The argument from authority, uh, in some cases, uh, might be the law. The French Parlement had... Um, actually made the criticism of Aristotle illegal, at least in the uh, universities, um, during around the time of Descartes. So it, it must be said that sometimes a philosopher is the, uh, the victim upon later readings of his own success, and that some of the things that Montaigne argues here may, may seem very obvious values for us to hold, but they're very subversive during the time when Montaigne authors these ideas. But one of the reasons why I wanted to look at that essay of the education of children as an introduction to the ideas of Montaigne is because it contains his dismissal of book learning and his dismissal of the accumulation of erudite facts and quotations. But 
he gives us this argument supported with a number of quotations from ancient authors. Montaigne famously opposed a purely classical education and considered too much absorption in the classics to be an impediment to education's true aim, that cultivation of the capacity to judge. And yet you will not find anything in the modern canon of literature, let's say from the last hundred years or so, that includes so many quotations from the ancients as Montaigne includes. Um, and that's not really a contradiction per se, because Montaigne's reading of the wisdom of the ancients is this, it includes that very principle that the education of the body has to be held to at least as much significance as the education of the mind, and that the education of the mind doesn't necessarily involve stuffing it full of trivial facts. Montaigne argues elsewhere in this letter that, quote, it is not enough to toughen his soul. We must also toughen his muscles, end quote. Speaking of the prospective student that we're educating, he says that to make a man out of someone, we must not spare him hardships and tough discipline. He quotes Horace, quote, let him live beneath the open sky and dangerously, end quote. And he quotes Cicero again, quote, work hardens one against pain, end quote. So we have all of these, um, supporting quotes from ancient authors, which is, as we'll see, Montaigne's modus operandi. Montaigne says that we require but little learning in order to live happily, and he conveys this truth in his very learned manner. But he holds, nevertheless, that one should study the ancients in order to take in the lives that are recorded there, determine the lessons one can draw from those lives. That's, of course, the... Uh, the interpretive uh, task of Plutarch, for example, who he mentions. Montaigne points out that this was the one form of intellectual pursuit that the Spartans did not deny themselves, the study of the great souls of the best ages. The portrait Montaigne gives of this prospective student, educated properly in this manner, is that, quote, he will be taught not to enter into discussions or argument except when he sees a champion worth wrestling with, and even then, not to use all the tricks that can help him, but only those that can help him the most. Let him be made fastidious in choosing and sorting his arguments, and fond of pertinence, and consequently of brevity. Let him be taught above all to surrender and throw down his arms before truth as soon as he perceives it whether it be found in the hands of his opponents or in himself through reconsideration. For he will not be set in a professor's chair to deliver a prepared lecture. He is pledged to no cause, except by the fact that he approves of it. End quote. And we can see several notions that would be echoed by Nietzsche later, how Nietzsche says he only attacks causes which are victorious, that, uh, it doesn't, it's not worthy of him to attack uh, an opponent weaker than himself intellectually and um, not becoming a disputer trying to swat flies in the marketplace and the praise of brevity. You know, Nietzsche famously says that he can say in one paragraph what others say in an entire book. A sentiment that runs throughout this essay of Montaigne's is skepticism. This is often said to be the defining feature of Montaigne. If he stands for any of those ancient traditions uh, or schools of philosophical thought, 
then he stands as the Renaissance-era representative of the Pyrrhonists, the great skeptics who ridiculed all apparent certainties. Montaigne, too, doubts everything. He was fluid in his opinions and sometimes went on to contradict in his later essays what he wrote in his younger years. For example, in the essay of experience, he directly contradicts the entire thrust of his argument in the letter that we just uh, examined uh, by saying that he understands himself better through his own life than through a reading of Cicero, and quote, the life of Caesar has no greater example for us than our own, end quote. Such contradictions are certain to bother anyone searching for a structured system of thought in Montaigne, but they will never find it. He wrote of himself that his character was, quote, wavering and diverse. If he was fixed in any conviction, it was that he was uncertain. And even this uncertainty is subject to doubt. In Montaigne's famous essay, Apology on behalf of Raymond Sebon, he quotes from Lucretius, quote, Whoever thinks that we know nothing does not know whether we know enough to say that this is so. End quote. And Montaigne's comment on this little couplet is quote, Ignorance that knows itself, that judges itself and condemns itself, is not complete ignorance. To be that, it must be ignorant of itself. So that the profession of Pyrrhonians is to waver, doubt, and inquire to be sure of nothing, to answer for nothing, end quote. To put it into the language of Isaiah Berlin, who separated philosophers into foxes who know many things and hedgehogs who know one big thing, Montaigne is a fox par excellence, because even the one big thing that he knows, which is that he cannot know, is not even something that he knows. <laughs> His work is hardly devoted to any kind of like organized demonstration of this Pyrrhonist approach to life. His work is not a unified project. It's not an apologia for skepticism. Rather, his interests are wide-ranging. Among his essays, we find the titles Of Solitude, Of Sleep, Of the Art of Discussion, Of War Horses, How We Cry and Laugh for the Same Thing, That Our Desire is increased by difficulty, and a hundred other titles that, you know, indicate topics covering nearly every facet of human life. And so what we find in Montaigne's essays are so many diverse topics that it's virtually impossible to give a succinct account of what his overall project was. Perhaps the best we can manage is a somewhat cheeky remark he gives in the essay of idleness, where he says that his mind, quote, like a runaway horse gives itself a hundred times more trouble than it took for others, and gives birth to so many chimeras and fantastic monsters, one after another, without order or purpose, that in order to contemplate their ineptitude and strangeness at my pleasure, I have begun to put them in writing, hoping in time to make my mind ashamed of itself. End quote. Montaigne was in some sense a definitive type of the 16th century. He was an aristocrat and, by his own description, a thoroughgoing Frenchman of the time. And what he means by this is that he knew a little of everything, but nothing comprehensively. And that's kind of how we use the term Renaissance man today. He was reared on the very Greeks that Nietzsche says would have enjoyed Montaigne's writing. 
as well as the great Roman writers. He likes the Romans a little more than the Greeks. Um, he shows preference to them in his choice of quotations. He was given an attendant when he was still an infant who spoke to him only in Latin, and so he was effectively fluent in the dead language of Latin as if it were his native tongue. His teachers dreaded interacting with him in, in Latin because he spoke it uh, so casually. He intimidated them in this respect. You know, his his command of the language was so much so much beyond those of his teachers that it was like embarrassing for them to interact with him. Um, and so he became a polyglot and learned many languages, although in his own essays, he's sometimes self-critical of his own level of mastery. Montaigne comes of age during a time of sectarian violence in Europe between Catholics and Protestants, which in France uh, took the form of the Protestant Huguenot faction versus the forces of the Counter-Reformation. The unrest was so widespread in France that Montaigne writes that many good and innocent people had found themselves subjected to the dungeon, to torture, to execution, and that therefore anyone in these days must be prepared to meet such a fate should it arise. There was no neutral position in these sectarian conflicts, by the way. I mean, one is either a Catholic or a Protestant, and if you said, uh, I'm neither, <laughs> that might actually be a worse answer to give. That might make you an apostate or a heretic. Uh, and so this background context is somewhat significant because Montaigne's father is Catholic, but his mother is likely a Protestant. Two of his siblings were Calvinists. So in this time of violent religious intolerance, Montaigne's family contained a diversity of theological views, which is somewhat fascinating. His father apparently held relatively libertarian sentiments in regard to raising children, uh, preferring not to force or coerce the young Michel. And that approach seems to be the one that Montaigne goes on to advocate for in that essay on the education of children. That's the method by which he himself was raised, to use encouragement, teach the child to have a good mind and good judgment, rather than repeat a set of doctrines. But perhaps it is the emphasis that his father placed on education in the classics that led Montaigne to later sort of diminish the importance of that kind of education, diminish the importance of a rigorous study of Latin. He wrote, uh, all things considered, however, that he'd had, quote, the best father there ever was, and the most indulgent, even in his extreme old age, end quote. Montaigne attended university, as was expected of him, and he studied law, a discipline that he seems to have had really no particular love for, but he pursued this discipline as a matter of his station in society. There was a tradition of public service in Montaigne's family, as in most of the notable families of Renaissance France, and he became a member of the Bordeaux Parlement and the municipal court. During this time, he met his best friend, Etienne de la Bautier. Etienne was another young aristocrat and one with very liberal sentiments for the time, and he opposed absolutism and monarchical rule. This viewpoint didn't necessarily make you a Republican. Uh, you know, in the context of the 16th century, the days of the Fronde were yet to come. Uh, there were competing power structures in France besides that of the monarchy. There were the parlements. The aristocracy generally represented a more distributed 
albeit still hierarchical power structure that sort of sat beneath and undergirded the French crown, and it existed in the state of tension with the crown often. But um, nevertheless, it was radical to oppose the rule of the monarchy. And at the age of 18, the young Etienne wrote, but refrained from publishing an essay which came to be called Contra Un, or Against One Man Rule. In this essay, he opposed the centralization of power into a single king. In some ways, these two young men had contrasting personalities. Etienne was an idealist and a devoted Christian. He had the certainty of his convictions. Montaigne, meanwhile, was by nature ambivalent. His writing style is more cool-headed. He is a realist, favoring not the structured, persuasive argument for a given position, but preferring to make observations uh, sort of from a detached or a more distant perspective. He comes to more empirical conclusions. Montaigne is best when he is more indifferent, uh, where he's rational, considering things from on a height, whereas Etienne was invested, he was romantic. He's what we might call a bleeding heart in today's terms. Nevertheless, Montaigne says that the two men formed this deep bond of friendship, and he writes, quote, Truly the name of brother is a beautiful name and full of affection, and for that reason he and I made our alliance a brotherhood, end quote. It's funny that he, he chooses... Uh, you know, that that's sort of like a common motif to say that to be a brother is closer than friendship. But it's interesting, in his essay of friendship, Montaigne actually says the love between friends is even deeper than familial brotherhood, we might say. He says that the platonic love between friends is better than the love between a father and a son, or between siblings, even between husband and wife. The relationship between father and child is too unequal. A key part of friendship is the aspect of admonition, to be able to check one of your friends when he's in the wrong, to admonish him to act rightly. A son can't really do this for his father, certainly not in Montaigne's time. And meanwhile, the father can't convey all his secret thoughts and feelings to his son. That's another key aspect of a true platonic friendship. One has to be a confidant to their friends, be there to listen to them, uh, be willing to hear and commiserate with somebody, concerning thoughts and feelings that can't be expressed publicly. Maybe in one's adult life, you know, you could have such a father-son relationship, but the father can't go to his child and start unloading all his emotional baggage on him. So there's fundamental imbalances in how the relationship works, which makes it less intimate than a friendship. It's the same with brothers. For brothers will have the property of the family's estate inevitably divided amongst them meaning that the gain of one is the loss of the other. Brothers exist in a sort of competitive relationship, which, again, undercuts the closeness that they could potentially have in friendship. Similarly, with marriage, it's not a free and voluntary association, but rather, quote, it is a bargain to which only the entrance is free, its continuation being constrained and forced, depending otherwise than on our will and a bargain ordinarily made for other ends, end quote. In other words, marriage is a contractual arrangement. It's done for practical and financial reasons, and it's not a relationship, especially in Montaigne's time, that is continued out of our free choice, like friendship is. It's an association that is, again, contractual. 
Montaigne therefore has high praise for the free and voluntary association of friendship between two equals with no familial, romantic, or contractual arrangement of any kind. And he sums this up with this remark, quote, The more they are friendships which law and natural obligation impose on us, the less of choice and free will there is in them. And our free will has no product more properly its own than affection and friendship. End quote. I think it was worth delving into that little essay of Montaigne's on friendship because this was the kind of bond that he had with Etienne. It was perhaps one of the most impactful and painful events of Montaigne's life when a plague came through Bordeaux and Etienne was one of those who was afflicted. As Etienne lay dying, stricken with fever, he endured the pain with a kind of Christian stoicism. Montaigne remained by Etienne's bedside throughout his final days. After Etienne's death, Montaigne wrote, quote, I was so accustomed to be ever two, and so inured to be never single, that I am now but half of myself. End quote. Montaigne was 30 years old at the time of his best friend's death, and no friendship would ever uh, replicate that kind of bond that he'd had with Etienne. It was three years later in 1570 that Montaigne begins committing his thoughts to the page in the form of the essays. He would continue writing until the end of his life. Some of his later essays even go into detail about the state of his physiological degeneration in his old age. He would revise them many times over the years, and if you pick up a copy of the essays today, uh, they usually have an indication of when the various lines of the essay are from, which are the originals and which are the later editions. It was in 1580, shortly after publishing the first edition of the essays, that he embarked on a journey through Western Europe, a time-honored practice of the upper classes of Europe, the Grand Tour. Montaigne also wrote extensively of his travels, producing a travelogue covering a span of just over a year and a half. He might have remained abroad longer, but he was recalled to France to become mayor of Bordeaux, tried to beg out of this obligation and asked Henry III to release him from it, but the monarch insisted, and he was obliged to return and take up this political post. Montaigne's travels took him through Switzerland, Germany, Austria, and on a thorough exploration of Italy. The first travelogue is dictated to a secretary who accompanied him on the journey. The remaining three came from Montaigne's own hand. He never intended to publish any of this. Uh, they weren't discovered until almost two centuries after he died. There's nothing in them really related to Montaigne's philosophical investigations, and they read almost like a series of journal entries. In these journals, Montaigne shows a keen interest in the daily lives of the people he encounters, in the customs, and especially in the religion of the locals. He attends various religious services. He often approached the priest or the preacher, whether a Catholic or a Zwiglian or Lutheran or a Calvinist, and he interrogates them. And I, I say interrogates in a tongue-in-cheek way here. He never seems, uh, to me anyway, as though he's questioning them in bad faith or, or motivated by a desire to undermine their theology or, you know, debate them. What comes through is a genuine interest in the contrasting perspectives of people from other sects that he's not as familiar with. He would ultimately hold the position of mayor for only four years. Another plague may have saved him, 
from finishing out his second term. He abdicated the position and was allowed to retire to the countryside. A constant physical ailment that plagued Montaigne was kidney stones. And over the course of his uh, travels throughout Europe, he records passing kidney stones in the many rivers and baths of Western Europe. He visited a number of natural mineral springs with water purported to be helpful to men with his condition. He records all of these details in the travelogues with a kind of clinical tone. Uh, It seemed that nothing was ever to put an end to this ailment, however, and the kidney stones continued to bother him even after his retirement. Sometimes Montaigne found himself disabled in pain, unable to urinate. This condition would be with him for the rest of his years, until he died in 1593. Many have speculated about Montaigne's religious beliefs. What was his religion, or was he perhaps a deist, or an atheist, or an agnostic? Did he hold some sort of esoteric or philosophical belief about human existence that perhaps couldn't be uttered in light of the intolerance of the time? Well, in his Apology for Raymond Sebon, he calls atheism monstrous, and his comments on agnosticism would seem to suggest that the agnostics are not being agnostic enough. Remember, someone who condemns his own ignorance still thinks he is, um, still thinks he knows enough to know that he is ignorant. So at least some of these potential labels um, would seem to have been rejected by at least Montaigne himself. But in this line of inquiry, we're still not really closer to saying, affirmatively speaking, what he believed it might be helpful to examine the background of that very essay, The Apology of Raymond Sebon, and uh, examine what Montaigne was doing in writing it, because the essay's topic is religion. Raymond Sebon was a theologian who had devoted his career to demonstrating the rationality of the Christian beliefs. His project comes out of the scholastic tradition, which was, in effect, you know, the, the synthesis of Aristotelian physics with Christian metaphysics. The morality and doctrines of the Christian religion supported by the logic that comes down to us through Aristotle and, you know, revealed by the natural sciences as the the methodology handed down from the Aristotelians. Raymond Sebon's desire comes out of that same type of thinking. One could even say that we find some of the first stirrings of the Enlightenment here in figures like Sebon, that desire to make the Christian faith rational. And I have advanced that argument uh, for my own part when it comes to analyzing, for example, the significance of Descartes. Descartes uh, is not really this huge departure with Christian theology. His whole work is rooted in Christian theology. It's just the difference between accepting it based on revelation and trying to argue for it based on reason. That's really the difference that launches us into the Enlightenment. But uh, Sabon and Montaigne precede Descartes. Before the ascendance of a Cartesian rationalism, in fact, before Descartes is even born, Montaigne differed from the rationalist approach. He expressed a more empirical approach, writing, quote, All knowledge is addressed to us by the senses, end quote. It's, it's worth noting, he also precedes Locke, by the way. Um, even though it must be said, uh, this approach is nothing new because Montaigne uh, sees himself as carrying on in the tradition of Sextus Empiricus, um, from which we get the term empiricism, and of course from Piron and the Pironians. And so given this, one may wonder what Montaigne might have thought of Raymond Sibbal's 
Theologia Naturalis. This was a very popular work among French Catholics, and it argued that the Christian faith should be demonstrated by reason. Sabon had faced criticism for this view. The apology for Raymond Sabon was, superficially speaking, Montaigne's riposte against these critics. But given everything we've already discussed concerning Montaigne, this may seem strange. Would Montaigne really take up the cause of having rational certainty in Christian belief, given his repeated assertions of skepticism? The essay runs to around 200 pages. Montaigne included it with the second edition of his collected essays, but it's like a book in and of itself, escaping the form of the essay and becoming its own separate work. The way Montaigne proceeds in this text is by answering the various objections to Sibon. The first such objection to Sibon is, as Montaigne paraphrases it, that Christians ought not to support their religion by reason, because their religion must rest on faith alone. Montaigne's counter to this argument is that our faculty of reason is something that God gave us, and that it is a noble thing to use this gift of God in order to well, in order to comprehend how far beyond our reason is the reason of God, how far beyond the human mind is the mind of God. Montaigne says that ultimately, if the Christian religion could be apprehended by reason alone, those virtuous and learned pagans of the pre-Christian era would have come to it by reason, but they didn't, which indicates that indeed, reason alone does not establish one's Christianity. But nevertheless, for one who is already a believing Christian, one edifies the religion by seeking to defend it with logic. He says that, quote, faith coming to color and illumine Sabon's arguments makes them firm and solid. They are capable of serving as a start and a first guide to an apprentice to set him on the road to knowledge, end quote. So notice what Montaigne is doing here. He has, in terms of what he professes, agreed with Sabon. But in terms of his conclusions, if we analyze the substance of what he's saying, ultimately Montaigne makes the argument that Christianity can't be demonstrated by pure reason, that it does require faith, which is far from Sabon's position. Montaigne's trick is to paraphrase the critics of Sabon as saying that it isn't good or worthwhile to prove one's faith by reason, and Montaigne argues it is good and worthwhile to do so, but importantly, he does not argue that reason actually establishes that certainty in Christianity. Reason is good for other reasons. This is a great lesson in the art of rhetoric. And I think it's because of the fact, not in spite of it, that Montaigne doesn't seem to be arguing in bad faith here, at least from my reading of him. I think this kind of argument is the honest truth of how he feels. We do not obtain the truth by knowledge, by discursive knowledge. And yet, it's a good thing, in spite of this, to use our faculty of knowledge to pursue the truth. Let's consider the second defense that Montaigne makes. Some critics think that the problem with Sabon is that his arguments are logically weak and unsound, and thus that they can demolish these arguments with ease. Montaigne says his purpose, then, will be to humble these critics, quote, to crush and trample underfoot human arrogance and pride, to make them feel the inanity, the vanity, and nothingness of man, 
to wrest from their hands the puny weapons of their reason. End quote. So, Montaigne is specifically countering those who object to Sabon on the basis that he could have made better arguments, and Montaigne again, quote-unquote, defends Sabon by saying that there are no better arguments. Human reason is something vain and worthless. And he quotes Herodotus here, quote, For God allows great thoughts to no one else, end quote. So in form, Montaigne defends Sabon. In substance, he advances his own ends, which are, they could be interpreted as quite antithetical to those of Sabon. But Montaigne goes even further in this essay. You might have picked up on an affinity with Socrates here, the one who said, I know that I do not know. He contrasted his own awareness of his ignorance to the false pretensions to knowledge displayed by those around him, which would seem to be similar to Montaigne's project. Montaigne does a sharp about-face from the position of Socrates, however, and argues instead that man's knowledge cannot make him happy. Because, uh, you know, in Socrates' view, I mean, the promise of the Socratic philosophy is that the virtuous life, the just life, is the happy life. And that knowledge, uh, the pursuit of truth, this is the path to virtue. But Montaigne quotes from Ecclesiastes, quote, In much wisdom is much grief, and he that acquires knowledge acquires travail and torment, end quote. And in the next section, Montaigne even argues, knowledge cannot make us good. Here he finds a quote from St. Augustine, quote, God is better known by not knowing, end quote. And Tacitus, quote, It is more holy and reverent to believe in the works of the gods than to know them, end quote. And so ultimately, Montaigne argues that man possesses no sure knowledge at all, and he runs through the list of all the great cosmologists of ancient Greece, the pre-Socratic philosophers, Socrates, Plato, all of the philosophers who came after Socrates and Plato. He lists what all of them said about the divine. And none of these great wise men were in agreement about who or what God was. And many of them contradicted themselves or gave conflicting accounts. And indeed, as he states matter-of-factly, the opinion of Thales, of Anaximenes, of Pythagoras, Plato, Theophrastus, Cleanthes, and countless others, all of which are contradictory and don't seem to produce anything like a progression or a development, but simply differing speculations, one can see why it might be reasonable to conclude that the use of our reason to apprehend the divine hasn't gotten us anywhere. Montaigne says that the words of the philosophers are like so much confusion and claptrap, the differing opinions and positions of the various governments of the world, or their institutions, or their universities, are no different. All of this disagreement among supposed authorities reveals to us the wavering and unreliable character of our human intellect. As Cicero says, quote, Nothing can be said so absurd, but that it has been said by one of the philosophers. End quote. The result is that Montaigne thoroughly dismantles the entire project of Sibon while claiming to defend him, and this apparent mismatch between intentions and results have led some to conclude that Montaigne's true aim may have been to undermine the Christian faith. But I don't get this impression either. 
I think that Montaigne's stated goals might actually be the honest-to-God truth, insofar as his target truly is the arrogance of human rationality, the vainglory of thinking that we can attain an understanding of the infinite with our finite minds. And what perhaps speaks against this charge of Montaigne having been a secret atheist of some sort is Montaigne's assertion in this essay that what is best deified is that which we know the least. That perhaps this very not knowing, this uncertainty, was associated with the divine for Montaigne. That his skepticism was for him a form of devotion. And interestingly, he didn't manifest these doubts in the form of a free-thinking rebellious attitude to the church or to the moral conventions of the time. He quotes from Crispin, who writes, quote, It is a fine thing to obey your country's laws. End quote. Part and parcel with this, Montaigne argued that one should accept the religion of one's country and one's fathers. He remained a Catholic throughout his entire life. He considered heretics to be haughty and perhaps foolish, not unlike the kind of person who is assured of the power of human reasoning, you know, the kind, kind of person who draws a line in the sand over such doctrinal disagreements uh, as the heretics do, is investing too much importance in their own ability to tell truth from falsehood as regards religion. Montaigne would say to defer to the church, defer to the traditions. Uh, but he was always against that kind of approach of a Thomas More, uh, who set out to burn all of the Protestant uh, heretics. Montaigne says, quote, after all, it is setting a high value on our opinions to roast people alive on account of them, end quote. This commitment to skepticism was inscribed on Montaigne's personal seal. It was written on the ceiling of his library, quote, what do I know, end quote. And on the rafters of that same library, one could find variations on this same theme, such as the inscriptions the for and against are both possible, and I determine nothing, I do not comprehend things, I suspend judgment, I examine. I would also stress that for Montaigne, this approach to life is not a solemn and dour path through existence. Montaigne saw this as a, a happy undertaking, this, this undermining of all of our certainties. He saw his own pursuit of knowledge and philosophy as part of that Gaia Scientia. Etienne once said that Montaigne had as many extraordinary virtues as he did extraordinary vices, and Montaigne was nothing if not worldly and inquisitive. We find ourselves faced with this man who, in the knowledge that he does not know, advocates for living fully within this state of doubt. He speaks on behalf of the established truths and traditions, uh, and we find that element in his life as well, his willingness to carry on his family's tradition of public service, and yet his innate liberality and open-mindedness prevents him from taking any of this all that seriously. Uh, one of Montaigne's essays is called Of Democritus and Heraclitus, and he contrasts those two philosophers. According to that old prejudice, that Democritus was the philosopher who laughed, and Heraclitus was the philosopher who wept. There seems to be little historical evidence, at least that I can find, that the actual Heraclitus was this melancholy type of person. But this characterization seems to come from the idea, Heraclitus views the beliefs of all those around him as absurd and misguided, and so 
The idea is that out of pity for the ignorant ones that he saw all around him, he always wore a sad expression. Um, you know, Heraclitus says, for example, although this logos, the law of the physical world, is readily apparent to all, men choose not to see it. Democritus, meanwhile, also sees the commonplace judgments about reality to be false, but, uh, as the story goes, he chose to laugh at it and mock this ignorance. Juvenal writes, quote, One always, when he over his threshold stepped, laughed at the world, and the other always wept. End quote. So this is almost certainly, again, a later interpretation, or interpolation, rather. It's an attempt to create a, I think, a rather simple contrast between these two. But nevertheless, these two archetypes can be used for the purposes of illustration. And Montaigne says, quote, I prefer the first humor, not because it is pleasanter to laugh than to weep, but because it is more disdainful and condemns us more than the other. And it seems to me that we can never be despised as much as we deserve, end quote. Montaigne's actually, I find him to be very funny. And I think the sentence is a wonderful example of the style of Montaigne and his sense of humor. And this is certainly a tongue-in-cheek remark. It's clever in a self-deprecating kind of way. But then he goes on to make a real point uh, a bit further down in this essay. He writes, quote, Pity and commiseration are mingled with some esteem for the thing that we pity. The things we laugh at we consider worthless. I do not think there is as much unhappiness in us as vanity, nor as much malice as stupidity. We are not so full of evil as of inanity, and we are not as wretched as we are worthless. Thus Diogenes, who pottered about by himself, rolling his tub and turning up his nose at the great Alexander, considering us as flies or bags of wind, was really a sharper and more stinging judge, and consequently juster to my taste, than Timon, who is surnamed the hater of men. For what we hate we take seriously. Timon wished us ill, passionately desired our ruin, shunned association with us as dangerous, as with wicked men depraved by nature. Diogenes esteemed us so little that contact with us could neither disturb him nor affect him, and avoided our company not through fear of association with us, but through disdain of it. He considered us incapable of doing good or evil. End quote. And so we see the emulation of that attitude, uh, here described as that of Diogenes or of Democritus. We see that emulation in Montaigne's own dismissal of heresy, but without antipathy or hostility toward heretics. We see it in his rejection of Sabon's rational basis of faith all while claiming to stand as his defender. There's something cheerful and carefree in the approach of Montaigne. All the same, I wouldn't construe his attitude as nihilistic in the least. We always have to temper our understanding of Montaigne's statements, statements which are against the pursuit of knowledge and against philosophy. We have to temper our understanding of those with the reality that he loved knowledge and philosophy. And he writes that the simple-minded peasants are made into good Christians simply by belief in the doctrines and adherence to the laws, but that, quote, the best, most settled, and clearest seeing spirits make another sort of well-believers, who by long and religious investigation 
penetrate to a more profound and abstruse meaning in the scriptures and discover the mysterious and divine secrets of our ecclesiastical polity. The simple peasants are honest folk, and so are the philosophers. End quote. Again, there is no opinion of Montaigne's with which we cannot contrast some apparently opposing sentiment from him, and this is something he's aware of, and I think he celebrates that about his, himself in his own writing. Perhaps another reason for Montaigne's distrust of our faith and our own reason is his awareness of our own bad memory as a species. This critique of memory, it's one of those perennial interests of the philosophers. It comprises one of Wittgenstein's arguments and philosophical investigations, for example. In the essay of Liars, uh, Montaigne confesses to us, quote, There is no man who has less business talking about memory, for I recognize almost no trace of it in me, and I do not think there is another in the world so monstrously deficient. All my other faculties are low and common, but in this one I think I am singular and rare, and thereby worthy of gaining a name and reputation. Besides the natural inconvenience that I suffer by this, for certainly, in view of its necessity, Plato is right to call memory a great and powerful goddess. If in my part of the country they want to say that a man has no sense, they say he has no memory. And when I complain of the defectiveness of mine, they argue with me and do not believe me, as if I were accusing myself of witlessness. They see no distinction between memory and understanding. This makes me look a lot worse than I am. But they do me wrong, for rather the opposite is seen by experience, that excellent memories are prone to be joined to feeble judgments. End quote. So once again, we have this fascinating inverse correlation that's drawn between memory and original thought, or what's here described as capacity for judgment. Uh, Robert Persig, we may recall, when teaching rhetoric, actively opposed the approach of the university based on memorization of certain rhetorical uh, techniques to be learned and internalized by the student. He opposed that to his own method based on original expression and authenticity. Nietzsche also questions whether a prodigious memory, uh, life lived as a historical being, is actually beneficial to life, and concludes that life is not possible without forgetting. Or we might look to that great English poet of the 19th century, Lord Byron, who wrote that a joy remembered is no longer joy, but a pain remembered is still pain. Montaigne therefore stands with all of these figures who critiqued our overestimation of our own memory. But Montaigne enacts this critique for different reasons than Byron might have had, because as he says, men of great memory are often witless and vice versa. Men of great discernment are often wanting when it comes to memory. And perhaps more importantly for his purposes in this particular essay, Montaigne says that a good memory is a prerequisite for lying, and that all of those who involve themselves in fabrications and deceptions and distortions of the truth all do so because they think themselves to have a good enough memory to do so. He therefore counts his blessings because he knows that his own memory is so bad that he should never try to get involved with court intrigues or uh, you know, making up stories or the like because he would never be able to keep his stories straight. Those who do think their memory is good enough to allow them to engage in the vicious business of lying 
uh, Montaigne goes on to argue are factually wrong about this. Their memory is never as good as they think it is. He gives the example of an ambassador from Milan who was caught in a lie by the king of England. The king had dispatched an agent, a spokesman, to covertly represent his interests to the Duke of Milan. It was necessary to maintain the cover that this man was simply a private citizen, that he was not there to influence the court of Milan on behalf of England, because formally the Milanese are under the hegemony of the Holy Roman Empire. But the Holy Roman Emperor discovered that the King of England had an agent in Milan, and the Duke of Milan, seeking to avoid any trouble with the Emperor, had the agent's head cut off, swiftly and surreptitiously. The agent was beheaded in the middle of the night, in fact. The King of England then summoned the ambassador for the Duke of Milan, a man named Francesco, and asked him for an explanation. The ambassador Francesco claimed not to have even known the man who was executed. He claimed ignorance on behalf of the duchy as to this agent's true nature. He said that this agent of the king was simply executed for his involvement with a murder. That any coincidence that existed, that this executed man happened to be an agent of the English crown, that was purely coincidental. We didn't know. Sorry. But the king continued to press Francesco questioning him as to why this agent was beheaded in the middle of the night, almost in secrecy. At this point, the ambassador slipped up and explained that, well, as the man executed was representing the English crown, surely it was an all-good decorum not to make his execution a matter of public spectacle. Of course, that's a contradiction in the story, uh, because it contradicts the idea that he wasn't even known to be an English agent. And so Montaigne says, This ambassador Francesco who was known to be very good with words, able to easily wave away the concerns of various courts of Europe to deceive the courts of Europe with his command of oratory. He simply didn't have as good of a memory as he thought he did when he was under pressure and being interrogated by an angry king. What we have in this parable, then, is that faith in one's own mind, in one's own knowledge, memory, intellect, is not the way to virtue but rather faith in one's knowledge of their own ignorance, their own ineptitude, their own forgetfulness, that is a surer way to virtue. Montaigne is virtuous because he knows he doesn't have the memory to lie, and therefore his knowledge of his own bad memory, his own faultiness, is a sort of blessing. It is, once again, hubris, the arrogance of men, when people think themselves able to weave these fictions and still keep all of the details straight. It is wiser to know ourselves to be fallible. If we had to put to words what exactly it was that Montaigne hoped to gain from philosophy, we might consider the essay that to philosophize is to learn to die, the title of which is a paraphrase of Cicero. Montaigne's immediate comment uh, at the beginning of the essay on this notion of Cicero's is that, quote, this is because study and contemplation draw our soul out of us to some extent and keep it busy outside the body, which is a sort of apprenticeship and semblance of death, end quote. I think this is something that would probably not be fully articulated until the time of Nietzsche, that the will to truth, 
philosophy, inquiry, the theoretical approach to life is a sort of escape from the physiology, from the physical world. Philosophy allows the mind to stand aside from our embodied material circumstances, our joys and sorrows, our wealth or deprivation, and consider truths which are far from reality, ideas which are far from reality, ideas which are abstract, or to uh, consider lives which are far from our own, concepts which are rarefied, which are not immediately perceived by the senses. But shortly after this insight, Montaigne offers another possibility for why Cicero said philosophy was to learn to die, which is more commensurate with his pursuit of personal virtue. Quote, or else it is because all the wisdom and reasoning in the world boils down finally to this point, to teach us not to be afraid to die. End quote. The principal benefit of virtue, Montaigne asserts, is this disdain for death, this dismissive indifference towards death. He says that all of our reason is aimed at achieving happiness or pleasure, and that no one would follow a philosophy that produces pain and displeasure. And so here in Montaigne's work, we have the pleasure principle as an explanation of human action and what drives human action, uh, far predating many of the people who would later articulate this idea. And so it's from this that the concern with the problem of death, the problem of human mortality, arises. It's for this very reason that death always hangs over us, for this knowledge of our own death produces displeasure. And so the problem is not so much with our death as with the displeasure caused by the knowledge of it. Montaigne writes, quote, Our law courts often send criminals to be executed at the place where the crime was committed. On the way, take them past beautiful houses. Give them as good a time as you like. But to quote Horace, quote, Not even a Sicilian feast can now produce for him a pleasant taste, nor song of birds, nor music of lyre, restore his sleep, end quote. Do you think that they can rejoice in these things, and that the final purpose of their trip, being steadily before their eyes, will not have changed and spoiled their taste for all these pleasures? Claudian says, quote, He hears it as it comes, counts days, measures the breath of life upon their length, tortured by coming death. End quote. So this is the sense in which philosophy is about learning to die, because we are all ultimately in the position of these condemned criminals. Uh, the only difference between them is that they know precisely the time and place where they are going to die, and all of us do not. But um, because philosophy, like all human endeavors, is actually the search for happiness, and death is a problem for our happiness because it spoils our happiness while we live, thus philosophy is the project of learning how to think about death. Montaigne, as a true fox, does not proceed with the aim of finding a single answer to this question, but proceeds along many avenues of thought. Part of Montaigne's response here, for example, involves gratitude. He writes that, at the time of penning the essay, he has lived 39 years and says he feels at least that many more. 
but he says it is folly to think of a thing that far off, and furthermore argues to himself, if no one else, quote, Poor fool that you are, who has assured you of your life? You are building on the tales of doctors. Look rather at facts and experiences. By the ordinary run of things, you have been living a long time now by extraordinary favor. You have passed the accustomed limits of life. And to prove this, count how many more of your acquaintances have died before your age than have attained it. End quote. If death were an enemy that we could avoid, Montaigne would even assent to the vice of cowardice, since life is of course so precious, and peoples as noble as the Romans have made it their habit to avoid thinking or even talking of death. As Montaigne points out, many of their idioms tend to obfuscate mortality, as the Romans preferred to say, instead of he is dead, rather he has lived or he has ceased to live. But avoiding death is not possible, obviously. Montaigne appeals to the argument we find in Anaximander, the pre-Socratic, when he argues, quote, All the time you live, you steal from life. Living is at life's expense. End quote. Death is a condition of our very existence, not something that we have a choice in. Montaigne cites the example of Socrates. When he's told that the ruling government condemned him to die, Socrates says that, in turn, nature herself had condemned the men of the ruling government to die. We may recall the fearlessness with which Socrates faced his own execution, and he stated then that it was irrational to fear death as no man knew what death would bring, and whether it was not the most beneficial or wonderful event. We simply don't know that death is a terrible evil. It could be the greatest of all goods. And so Socrates goes to his death with a sort of moral and rational certainty that he has lived his life as virtuously as possible and that something which is common to all and thus a necessity, a necessary part of life, cannot possibly be something to fear. Montaigne echoes this sentiment, writing, quote, why do you recoil if you cannot draw back? How simple-minded it is to condemn a thing that you have not experienced yourself or through anyone else. End quote. And so, since we don't know what death is, our reason can counsel us to be unafraid. But this struggle to wrest ourselves from the clutches of this moral fear, that very work of preparing for death, that's much easier said than done. To continue with the metaphor of death as a sort of armed enemy that we have to confront, we have to learn to meet it steadfastly, uh, meet it in battle, uh, you know, even if we have fear to meet it with courage. And reason alone can't be the totality of our preparation for this battle. Montaigne says he'll take a different tact than the normal one in preparing for this meeting. That rather than avoiding thinking or talking about death, as we usually do, that he will come to know death and get used to the idea of death. He says, quote, let us have nothing on our minds as often as death, end quote. As Horace says, quote, man never can plan fully to avoid what any hour may bring, end quote. Death can happen at any moment, and so we should think of it at every moment. Montaigne continues, quote, at the stumbling of a horse, the fall of a tile, 
the slightest pinprick, let us promptly chew on this. What if it were death itself? Amid feasting and gaiety, let us ever keep in mind this refrain, the memory of our condition, and let us never allow ourselves to be so carried away by pleasure that we do not sometimes remember in how many ways this happiness of ours is a prey to death, and how death's clutches threaten it. End quote. And Montaigne says if we do this sincerely, we will await death expectantly everywhere we go, such that when it does come for us, it will not be a surprise. It won't be a horror. It'll be something we've been waiting for. We've been expecting this the whole time. The man who is prepared for his death, Montaigne says, is no longer a slave to it. This is a person with freedom. Now, Montaigne's fixation on death may seem to us to be morbid. It might even seem to be debilitating from a certain perspective. But Montaigne says that if we take this seriously, the sense of freedom will include a sense of priority or urgency. And he says that he constantly sings the refrain, quote, whatever can be done tomorrow can be done today, end quote. That he keeps himself ever in the fight and frenzy against the thought of death, which may sting at first, but over time, as one engages in the fight for a long while, you become accustomed to it. And we might recall Nietzsche's coinage that the thought of death could sweeten life with the uh, understanding of life's brevity. This thought could be like a drop of honey upon all of our experiences in life. Of course, Nietzsche charges that all these strange apothecary souls have transmuted the sweetness into the bitterest poison, which is a real shame. But Montaigne goes on to express a sentiment that would later find its place in Nietzsche's work, that, quote, truly risks and dangers bring us little or no nearer our end. And if we think how many million accidents remain hanging over our heads, we shall conclude that, lusty or feverish, on sea or in our houses, death is equally near us, end quote. One might very well be tempted to add, therefore live dangerously, build your temples on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. And yet, I must admit, that might not be quite identical with Montaigne's intentions here. Montaigne's approach to life as a means of preparing to die, in some sense, aims at a peace of mind. Even while one is in the midst of their day-to-day -day ordinary affairs, or the stress and uh, anxiety of uh, life in general. He says that he hopes death will find him while he is planting his cabbages, and that the reaper will hopefully find him as careless of death itself as he is of whether he shall finish his garden before death. He compares this ideal state of mind, this ideal middle ground, to uh, another man which he knew who complained as he died that death was cutting short his great work, which happened to be a history of, Montaigne says, the 15th or 16th of one of our kings. Uh, the ideal, therefore, being that one could be so carefree in the face of their mortality, having contemplated its imminence with the thought of it never far from their mind, and yet also unconcerned of whether they're destined to leave undone some part of their work while here on earth. I mean, how absurd the thought that the world would be so impoverished if I were not to finish planting my garden or finish writing my history of the 15th king of this French dynasty. And so that this contemplation should put you in that middle ground between where you're just motivated enough to do what can be done tomorrow, today, 
but not tormented by the thought that if death comes now, you won't be able to finish it. And so Montaigne goes on to say there's two possibilities, really. We either die a quick death or we die slowly. If we die a quick death, we will not have the leisure available to contemplate our death, and thus we have no time to be troubled by this thought while our death is happening. But those who die slowly, of illness, for example, often find that they become disdainful of life the nearer to the end that they come. Your body starts to shut down, life starts to be a pain, uh, a bore, and the more one deteriorates, the more one is prepared by nature herself for that eventuality. Montaigne says, quote, What stupidity to torment ourselves about passing into exemption from all torment. End quote. There's also another wonderful coinage of Montaigne's uh, on death in this essay where he writes, quote, Nothing can be so grievous that happens only once. End quote. Still, I think for many of us, the existential questions will remain. The existential fears will remain. But would you like to face this fate having spent no time contemplating the mortality to which we're all subject? Or would you like to have experience with confronting the question? Some may say that no amount of preparation will do any good when it comes to death. Montaigne says, quote, Let them talk. Beyond question, forethought is a great advantage. End quote. Towards the end, Montaigne writes, quote, The advantage of living is not measured by length but by use. Some men have lived long and lived little. Attend to it while you are in it. It lies in your will, not in the number of years, for you to have lived enough. Did you think you would never arrive where you never ceased going? End quote. It's worth noting that in a preceding essay, Montaigne argues the point that a life is not truly worthy of our judgment until it is completed that we cannot say what the true value of a life was or how well-lived it was until the story has reached its conclusion and the life is over. And therefore, with this kind of attitude in mind, disdainful toward the length of our lives, but solely concerned with what kind of story our life shall comprise, one would then see the value of life as measured by, as he says, their will. How fully did they live according to their own will over the course of their years? Yet another one of Montaigne's essays is entitled That Intention is the Judge of Our Actions, where Montaigne puts this best, I think. Quote, If I can, I shall keep my death from saying anything that my life has not already said. End quote. When Montaigne was 59 years old and had retired to the countryside, he himself came face to face with death, as we all do. As he lay dying, he called all of the members of his household together, his servants and legates, to give to them in person all that he had left to them in his will. The historian and philosopher Will Durant writes the following of the way Montaigne died. Quote, he received the sacraments of the church as piously as if he had never written a doubting word. End quote. And there you have it, friends, the life and death of Michel de Montaigne, creator of the essay, and a man called by Charles Augustin Saint-Beauve, quote, the wisest Frenchman who ever lived, end quote. For my own part, I have a deep feeling of kinship with Montaigne, 
with his radical agnosticism as regarding almost everything, coupled with a kind of practical common sense, an unwillingness to turn his skepticism towards, you know, human arrogance and reason into this kind of struggle with human arrogance or kind of struggle with reason. In Montaigne, instead of a philosophical mind trying to adjust the world to his own inclinations, we find a man who adjusts himself to the practical realities of the world. And so he stands in that same milieu as Sextus Empiricus, Thucydides, Epicurus, Hume, and of course Nietzsche. He's a worldly man with a worldly philosophy, and in his essays, as well as in his travel logs, one encounters that uncanny experience of meeting a relatable human being, but from five centuries ago. He speaks to us as if we were his confidants, excited to tell us the stories he's heard from the courts of Europe, anecdotes of his own life, bits of wisdom that he plucked from the ancients. He's a forerunner of the empiricism of Locke, a man who certainly applied a methodology of doubt before Descartes was born, and Montaigne is arguably the grandfather of the Enlightenment, as he's sometimes been called. He's a Renaissance man, a bridge from the classical world into the age of reason and post-Christian uh, Europe, and in him I've found a fascinating conversation companion of sorts when it comes to developing my own philosophical thoughts. He's a monumental figure in Western history, and yet he remains approachable, like an old friend. That's all for today, everyone. Thank you for joining me on this sojourn into the 16th century in France. Next week, we're going to uh, go to the next century, the 17th century, uh, and talk about a, another philosopher who responded to Montaigne, among others. Uh, someone who uh, almost drove himself mad uh, trying to fight off the doubts that were sowed in his mind by Montaigne. Uh, although some have argued that there might have been other reasons for his madness. Uh, we'll get into all of this uh, next week, but we're going to be talking about Blaise Pascal, a, another French philosopher uh, for whom uh, rational doubt was uh, not a source of pleasure in his life, but something that he struggled with, uh, struggled with greatly. Uh, so I'm very excited to get into that. Uh, all right. See you then, everyone. Please join me then. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.